All right, all right, all right. Welcome to the History and Music Podcast. This is your host, Scott Gifford. I am joined by Sean, as always. How are you doing, Sean? I'm all right. I have my two front teeth back, so we're we're good, man. I noticed that. You don't have a lisp. You you didn't say anything. (laughs) So I didn't. Ironically, I know we've been talking about like three episodes in a row and nobody really cares except for maybe my mom, but you'd be surprised how many people don't notice that I literally had my two front teeth knocked out and just never said anything. And then after I got them fixed, still didn't say anything. I'm like, wait, did you guys think I always looked like this? Or maybe it's one maybe it's one of those things where they're like, oh wait, he's missing teeth. Has he always been missing teeth? I don't know. Now I'm too embarrassed to ask. And so they just don't say anything. <laughs> That's anyway, we're good. Well, we're you good, look though. good. You Thanks, really man. Good. Happy, happy to be here. Um, I'm also joined by Dr. Bennett. Uh, how's it going? Good to be here. It's it's uh, it's exciting to see the high tech uh, sound editing techniques on display here. That's uh, oh yeah. I, 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 <laughs> he, <laughs> he had the just so for the listeners back home. He had the headphones cupped over the microphone for the for the track. So it was <laughs> just hey, all I'll, pro I'll go here. In and edit. Hey, I'm gonna we'll go in and I'm gonna um, go into Audacity, which I got for free, and and put the actual song on, so it's gonna sound really good. Which which um, to the audience, how, how awesome was that uh, throat singing? That was pretty sweet. Um, I had to get it, that the intro had to be long enough so we could get some of that that cool uh, singing. Well, and also, we work with we work with the materials we've got because it's not every day that we record from the high Mongol step. So you kind of work true. with what you got. You know. Yeah, yeah. We're uh, we're recording or we're we're listening to this from uh, from a YouTube video where um, the the artist Batsurig Vonchig. I, I probably butchered that, but he's it's a YouTube video where he's singing from the from the peak of a jagged mountain in the step behind him. It's it's a pretty cool video. But uh, yeah. Um, so that that throat singing, I actually was first introduced to it by a professor in college that had. I don't know, like 10 years ago, he he heard it or something and then learned it and he, he throat singed in, in class, throat sung in class. And uh, it was pretty cool. I later tried it and tried and uh, practiced for a little bit, but couldn't ever get that uh, that two notes going at the same time thing that they do. It's pretty cool. He's got uh, he's got he's got like little kids doing it. Have you seen if, if you look around, you can find he's got like a class of, of little kids that do it. Oh, he started uh, a school. I mean, I, I, from my understanding, is like he's he's sort of the, uh, the 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 sensei, the main sensei of like tube and throat singing. So is, is he the is he the con of the kume throat singing? The great, the great Probably. con, the supreme, the great con. con. He's <laughs> Um, yeah, they call it. How do they pronounce? Is it is it hume? Is that how they pronounce? Isn't that the word of Mongolian for the throat singing? Like the the what he what you're hearing is what they call hume, isn't it? Or kume? Oh, I don't I know. I think it's what they refer to I it know. as. That's, that's it return basically comes to like guttural or a certain type of throat singing, which is actually a very ancient method to to sing. And they theorize that the that the way this type of singing got its start because it's it's almost it's almost exclusively like an Asiatic kind of practice is because uh in mongolia you have these huge wide open spaces like a lot of plains a lot of you know wide open skies you do have some mountains and so forth but um when you when you sing that way 
in these wide open areas, you can sometimes go to a valley or something like that and get like this really good echo or really good um, vocalization and, and projection of your voice in Mongolia. And so it lends itself really well to, to have this sort of guttural throat singing in their traditional homeland, which I thought was kind of cool. I like that. I like when traditions cool. like that are so closely linked to the, like the actual place that they came from. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Well, we're, anyway, we're already, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say anyway, we're, we're, uh, we kind of passed over. We're, we're joined by Dr. Bennett. Uh, um, Good to be tell here. us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Um, the, the uh, people want to know who, uh, who we're talking to. Yeah. So, uh, I run, a, I run a group called exit it's a fraternal organization for guys trying to be more sovereign and break free from, uh, a lot of the, the structures of coercion, uh, you know, you're from your, from your HR department to, you know, uh, Jannies on Twitter to, uh, just, you know, all these sort of backdoor underhanded, uh, ways that, that, uh, the system that we live in gets people to comply. And, uh, I've been doing that for a little over a year. And, uh, I also run a similar group at, uh, with, with, with Tom Woods, who's a relatively well-known, uh, libertarian podcaster. And I have a sub stack and those are the big, those are the big things. And I got five kids with six on the way. Well, not five and six on the way. The sixth is on the way. And, um, oh, congrats, congrats, man. Is that the first time you've said that on the air? Uh, yeah, I guess so. You heard it here first. This is a, uh, you heard it here first, folks. Exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll put that, we'll put that in the, we'll put that in the Patreon so you can hear that behind the paywall. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, no, uh, uh, many, many strong sons. And uh, this will be my oldest is a girl, and this this next one is also going to be a girl. So we're pretty excited for her to have a baby sister. Finally, she's been she's been praying and 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 uh, learning about uh, when the answer to your prayers is no for for about <laughs> for about four years. So uh, she finally she finally is getting her baby sister. She's pretty excited. Hey, her fa- her faith and diligence paid off though. That's right. So, well, congrats, man. That's that's awesome. I'm happy for you. So, what other than obviously um, like Mongolian throat singing? What kind of music did you do you listen to on the regular, or did you kind of grow up listening to? Oh man, uh, I mean, I, if you if you saw like my my baseline playlist, it would like date me very precisely to like uh, like uh, you know Radiohead and Queens of the Stone Age and like Primus. So my, my, my mom was younger. So I actually was into a fair amount of like nineties. Like she was, she was in her twenties in the nineties. So like she was still like, you know, hip and listening to, to new stuff. So, so Metallica and Pearl Jam and that kind of thing, Nirvana. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, uh, it's kind of where I grew up. Lately, though, like, I, I, I mean, mostly I listen to music when I work out. So I, I, I kind of gravitate toward music that's like mildly psychoactive, like, uh, like the Doom soundtrack. That uh, is is yeah. really good for lifting um, some some electronic stuff. It's it's more of like a, uh, it's more of like a, a tool almost rather than something that I'm sort of consuming as entertainment and this definitely qualifies by the way oh good um i, I really like soundtracks they uh 
certain ones they help you focus right because when you're doing like complex work or or something you don't want lyrics to bug you yeah well i mean you can't like uh you 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 couldn't study to to the doom soundtrack it's uh it's <laughs> it's 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 mick gordon and it's it's like very intense metal so it's more like yeah. uh you, you sort of clawing your clawing your face off kind of crazy music um but i did so as far as like uh to study to i used to love the braveheart soundtrack that would be my like go-to like ambient that's a good one really good yeah yeah i think uh i think it's it's a healthy practice to use uh music as a tool in whatever you're doing whether it be studying or relaxing or uh getting pumped up um so what does this what does this song do to you? This uh, it's called Chingis Kani Magtal. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's very, um, it's very rousing. It's very uh, it make, makes you want to go go conquer Central Asia, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and I mean a lot of his stuff. Well, he yeah. like he's got he's got a variety of of things there's one there's one i can't remember the name he's got these he's got these set of of songs that he does like in his living room with his like with like kids around him and aunts and uncles and stuff that are a lot more like gentle and wholesome and this one is uh this is much more of like a battle hymn and uh mm-hmm. yeah I, I like it quite a bit it's it's an old old song right it's what i hear like the, the history of the song itself what do we know about that all I know is that it's all I know is that there's lots of versions of it and it's a it's a traditional it's it's a folk song. You know, English English language uh information on this song is pretty thin on the ground. But uh it it's interesting to see uh how Genghis Khan from based on the lyrics how he has sort of been integrated into like the Tengri religion. Like he right. it gets a it's a it's it's not a it's not a secular song. He's he's like an instrument of heaven and a and a, a a divine conqueror. It's very very interesting. Yeah, well, and, and just to jump right into it because the the song the song is called um, Chinggis Khani Magtal, which is a butchering of the Mongolian name, but I've seen different, different renderings of the actual title in English and it's either owed to Genghis Khan or in praise of Genghis Khan, just depending on how you want to um, interpret the word Magtel. But um, it, it's, it's interesting that, um, that this song still persists today because Genghis Khan or, or Genghis Khan, if you're, a historian of sorts. Um, I mean, he, the guy lived from the 1100s to like the beginning of the 1200s. And it's amazing that we still have folk songs being sung today, 2022 about this guy, you know, or that we even know anything about him at all, because this is, this is, you know, this is almost uh, pre-written language for a lot of these peoples, like these step nomad horse peoples, you know? Um, so it's, it's pretty amazing that we, that we have a song like this, that, it can still be relevant today. It still kind of stirs the blood today about somebody that none of us here really have any specific connection to, but it still does. So it kind of awakens something in us, um, which I, which I appreciated by your uh, suggesting of this song, Dr. Bennett. But um, 
can you can you just give us before we get to the lyrics can you kind of give us like just a rough idea of just how you found the song or what your experience with this song specifically is or maybe why you picked it well you know guys were 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 having a lot of fun with like the step larp on twitter back like maybe four years ago um this kind of bap and hakan uh a lot of those guys uh were were you know, uh, talk. Well, I mean, it's, some of it is related to like, and and you, you mentioned not having a connection to him, but like some of it was talking about like the the sort of the, the Yamnaya and the, the Indo Aryan horse lords that conquered Eurasia, what like way before this, and so viewing viewing the Mongols as as sort of the last holdout of this like conquering on horseback lifestyle that that really uh that dominated eurasia uh for for centuries and and in the in the uh sort of revisionist bat view uh formed the seedbed for like every european ruling class so and like it's drawing clear parallels between the horse lords and like the viking conquerors who then became the Norman elite who then became the British ruling class. Um, sort of a, an, an idea that all of these ruling classes are, are connected at least by sort of lineage and, 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 you know, uh, uh, talking about proto Europe, proto Indo-European myth, how there's, there's kind of commonalities. And like he talks about the uh, Tengri as the representation of the open sky and yeah, I don't know if you want me to like just jump in, but like, but like, we get you really used to saying uh, "Heavenly Father," but mm-hmm. what we're saying is our Father in in the sky, and um, and like the fact like the fact that he's up there is like is like sort of so natural and intuitive that you almost don't even like think about it, but when you hear it said as like when you hear it sort of run through the Google translate twice and it comes back as like the, the, the God in the sky, it sounds really alien, but we're saying the same thing. And um, like, like uh, it, the, the, I think from, from what I understand, the proto Indo-European title is juice Potter and which, which father, means father he- God uh, no, juice, I believe means in the heavens. Let me see here. We're going to do some, uh, well, I was thinking, um, I was, I was trying to look at like the Latin roots in those two words. And it seemed like that that's what that, that's what it, that's what it made my, my mind go to. But as we know, I have almost zero credentials, so I could be totally wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, this is from Wiktionary. So my source is clearly superior, but, uh, yeah, juice means sky or heaven or sky God. Okay. So yeah, it, it's it's heavenly father, which of course is where Jupiter comes from. That's the the Roman god is the is the god of the god of the heavens, the thunder god. And uh, yeah, well, what what? Sorry, go ahead. Well, so just to say, like when I one of the things that I I like to do is to sort of look at other religious traditions and try to see what they what they held on to from the primordial. <laughs> You know, I mean, in my view, the Adamic religion, uh, what yeah. what they held on to, what they changed, what is still 
you know, because we believe like if, if uh, we believe that the, that the reason that people are, are so uh, uh, motivated by and inspired by these other religious traditions is that they, they are motivated by the truth that's in them. They're motivated by what the spirit bears witness to. And so I, I like to sort of look back and see what, what about it is lighting them up. What's the truth there? Yeah, what what's persisting amongst all these different languages and cultures from ancient times till now? It's an interesting way to right. look at it. Yeah, um, and it's I find it interesting because, like, even in the like, I'm still I still have this YouTube video up with him and the step behind him, and it's just a big blue sky, and so it's like you, you look at the their their surroundings, like the the where they grew up in the in the 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 actual like physical place that they're at and how that might affect both their, their uh, language, their uh, affects a lot of things, but it, it also includes like their religion, like what their, their main God is literally the sky God Tangri. And it makes sense considering how much sky they have. Like, like, like the, it feels like they're, they have lots of, open space, big sky, like, well, it's like a Montana on steroids. Isn't Montana like the big sky country or whatever? Cause you have these beautiful exactly. blue skies. And, you know, in, in preparation for this episode, you know, as I was backing, you know, backpacking through Chulan Batar, um, mm-hmm. you know, that one thing I, I realized is that, uh, Mongolia is actually known for having not just blue skies, but having like sunny blue sky weather virtually all year long. They have something like 300 days of sunny blue sky weather, almost all year round. And so if you have a people who grew up in an environment like that, then it's no wonder that that's kind of where their worship would, would centralize. Mm -hmm. Well, and when the, and when the storms come through, there's nothing to stop them. And so they're extremely, I mean, I grew up in Texas. I grew up kind of uh, in the prairie and uh, tornado alley. And one of the things like, you know, we, 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 I went to the, I went to BYU for, for college and lived in Colorado for a while. And, um, you know, uh, mountains are beautiful, but, but when I, what I missed was the scope of the, the vastness of the sky and the fact that it's this cha- swirling dynamic changing thing, whereas the mountains, they look the same every day. And I think, you know, especially because it's, it's what brings the, it's what brings the rain, makes the grass grow. It's what can, you know, knock over your yurt, like just sort of a a lot of the uh, uncontrolled natural environment for those guys was uh, the sky. Right. It was a a harsh reality. Well, and something else, uh, Dr. Bennett, that, that when you were talking that kind of brought to my mind is, are you guys familiar? Have you ever heard of the, um, the superior wharf theory or superior wharf hypothesis and linguistics? Um, it's this idea that, um, that, that the language you speak, like your native language is how you shape the reality around you or how you cognitively like process the world around you. And so that's why you have certain peoples who speak certain types of languages that may consider a little more harsh of a language or, or a little more beautiful or whatever, their worldview oftentimes will mirror or mimic that. And oftentimes it's the the idea is it's all straight, it's all stemming from the language. Um, And you were talking about uh, Dr. Bennett, like in our theology, we call, you know, God, the, the, the deity that we worship, the primary, the primary deity we worship is heavenly father. 
Um, and I, I served my mission in Brazil and in Portuguese, the word they use for, for heavenly father is literally Pai Celestial, which is literally celestial father. And it's still this idea of in the heavens, but it's almost more of like an even more expansive and just, um, you know, it's like a, like a celestial following the same theology. It's a, you know, a higher kingdom than all the other kingdoms of glory that the Lord has. So it, I don't know anything about Mongolian, the language, but I suspect that a language that's so ancient and so steeped in just the culture and the, the, the world around them, that it probably shaped what kind of people these, these guys were and who Genghis Khan was. Well, I'm sure it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. Like did the people shape the language or the language shaped the people or yeah. But yeah. Yeah. You see that with like the, the sex based languages where there's feminine and masculine, like how, how that shapes, I'm sure that shapes people's minds differently. Well, um, this is a lot of a uh, preamble about what the song is. Should we, should we get into the song? Yeah. Works for me. Um, it's not, it, there's not a lot of lyric. So, so it's not like it, we're not going to like glean a bunch of history out of it. So we'll, uh, we'll just be throwing in anecdotes, I suppose, about the great con, um, as we go. Yeah. Uh, Bennett, do you want to start with the first line? Do you have it? Yeah. And, and again, this is, this is translated from Mongolian. So, but I think we'll every translation, best. every translation we found, we, we, we talked about it. They're all about the same. So it's. Uh, I think whatever we have is going to be as close as we're going to get. Yeah. Anyway, uh, blessed, blessed by the eternal sky, born of the steppe, everywhere in blue skyed Mongolia, his name resounds in the world. And there's a uh, uh, one of the things that I think is interesting is is that it's it's definitely like he seems to occupy kind of a religious position um, in in Mongol culture, and uh, like he's 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 almost sort of like the uh, the father Abraham and, and like almost in a literal sense. Cause he's like the, the progenitor of, uh, I was actually doing a write up on this, uh, something like 18% of the population in the, in the, in the lands that he conquered are his direct descendants. And in China specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it's he, like a uh, half a percent of the entire world, right? It's a lot. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that I found interesting about that is there's not a lot of like con energy in like Uzbekistan right now. Like I like, like, you know, uh, 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 not to like, not to like dog on them or anything, but like it's the people, just normal people like the, the Uzbeks look like Uzbeks and the Kazakhs look like Kazakhs and the Han look like Han. And even though they've all got this descent from, from Genghis Khan, it's, it's sort of like homeopathic. Like it's, it's, it's been, diluted and diluted and diluted until it's, you know, you can find it in a, in a Petri dish in a microscope, but like, do they look like him? Do they act like him? Basically what I was thinking about is he's sort of like the test case for like this uh, vision that I feel like some of us instinctively have of, of like sort of becoming immortal through our children. Mm -hmm. And it's like, nope. (laughs) <laughs> you, you know, you, uh, you, you're not going to become immortal through your children. They're going to be very different from you. They're going to be like their their mother and their mom's parents and aunts and uncles. And then and then their kids are going to have kids who are going to. It's going to be a quarter of you, and then an eighth, and and so on and so forth. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's like uh, I mean, you brought up Abraham. It's it, it, what you're talking about reminds me of the children of Israel. They're they split up into tribes, and they all have like their own thing, and then. They're obviously not always uh, uh, faithful and God has to rebuke them and all that stuff. And so it's like, 
yeah, it's without without a uh, a unifying religion or myth or something. It, they're not mm-hmm. the, your your progeny isn't going to be like you unless you have unless you're intentional about it, and not necessarily going to be a people. And I I, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's Jewish. And I was talking to him kind of about this subject, like, you know, because, you know, I, I, I uh, am of the tribe of Ephraim and like, whether you Same. accept that, right. And whether you accept that <laughs> factual claim or not, like it certainly could be true. Like, like it, it's, it's entirely plausible that some of the children of Abraham could end up blonde and blue eyed and and some of them might like my friend could could look Jewish, and uh, and it's like you know you're you, you're radically separate even though you even though you have the same lineage, and I think Abraham is maybe an example of the best way you could do it because he both had a lot of kids and inculcated a, a worldview a culture. And like that's you know, Genghis Khan probably wasn't even attempting a project like that. But but uh, but it, it, it's interesting to see the differences. Yeah, that's uh, I've had to like when the the brief study I've done on Genghis Khan in the past few days, it's like you have to keep in mind what were his goals. You know, like what right that it it makes so much more of what he did more clear to 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 imagine what his goal was, which was just to. I don't know. Take over as much land as possible and as fast as time as possible. I mean, according I, to what, I did, almost, that's what it seemed like, but I almost think he just liked war. Like I, I, I <laughs> like I almost. He wasn't really like he wasn't like optimizing for wealth or optimizing for, you know, no nope, for longevity uh, for anything. Yeah, yeah. I think he. Well, I think he liked what, the fight. What makes, yeah, and we've talked about that on one of our first episodes that we did together. Is, is uh, we kind of talked about how there there are some dudes out there that are just that's in their blood. Like that, all of us are built for violence and war, right? We know that. Like just our mm-hmm. our our sex, our gender as males. But I think there's some guys that get the lion's share of that, and and they they do things like conquer the known world and have the largest contiguous empire in history. You know, because they yeah. just have that that drive and. Um, it's interesting about what, and we talk about Dan Carlin a lot on this show. And I know before and prep for this, uh, Dr. Bennett, we mentioned about the wrath of the cons, this, this series that Dan Carlin did on, uh, Genghis Khan. And it's interesting that he conquered like the known world of his day, the large empire in history. And we're not even sure what he looks like. We're not even sure when he was born. We're not even sure where he was born. There's so many details we don't know about him, about, about a, 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 such an illustrious figure that has been so mythologized that it, it's pretty amazing that that uh, it, it still it still persists today. Um, and you were talking about this whole synthesis between like you know religious with like a founding father kind of aspect. I think sometimes as Americans we do that with our founding generation, you know. But to Mongols. This guy is not only almost a deity, but he also is like their George Washington. He's considered the father of Mongolia, even though this right. is, you know, like a thousand years ago. And it, it's crazy because if you look at his actual actions, especially by today's standards, which you should never do, by the way. I mean, this guy is like in, in today's parlance, he's literally Hitler. You know what I mean? Like, right. Right. <laughs> and uh, 
and and it's funny that he's so he's still so revered. Well, they don't get mad at him because he didn't discriminate. He wasn't racist. He was just killing everybody. So yeah, so it's fine. But then everyone did that. I mean, pe- people 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 say that. I mean, that's that's literally every every ruler that has done something like this has conquered something. They're they're harsh with their own people. I mean, that's something sure. that that comes up a lot when you're talking about Germany. Is like, yeah, you can say the Germans are harsh with other people, but you know what? They were harsh on their own people too. You know, the, the, the first people that they jailed or killed or whatever was their own people. And then they went outward, you know? Well, and what's, what's interesting about, about, uh, uh, Genghis Khan is he's like, he's like, I don't know if it's opportunist or, uh, like just super pragmatic. He, he, the way he went about things was like the story of how he gained his, one of his best generals, Je- Jebby, I think he was an enemy archer that, that like, I think hit him or something or like he, he was really good. What he was fighting against him, and and then at the end of the battle, when they were rounding everyone up, he's like, "What's your name? I recognize you from the battle." Told him his told him his name. He's like, "All right, your name is now Jebby, which I think means arrow or something." And uh, and said, "You're you're on my team now." You're, and he became one of his generals. And this Jebby guy was like one of his best. I, I mean, he's in some historians have said that he's literally the 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 greatest cavalry gen, general of all of history. Um, which mm. you can't really dispute considering how much they <laughs> they conquered, right? And so it's like he the, the way he went about things was like whatever is going to get me to make me more powerful, put more like he would do it. So it's like the the way he went about things was very pragmatic, opportunistic. But what's 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 wild about it is how like, he doesn't have a written record. We have nothing ever written by the guy, you know, and. So we don't actually know his motivations, like Bennett was saying. Like we don't actually know his motivations for it. There, there is some mythologizing of his life. Like some people talk about how, oh, his mother was this like warrior lady that was well respected in her tribe, and she used to teach him as a child about how the tribes were always warring amongst each other. And what if someone could unite them one day? But it's almost too good to be true to kind of have like you know like the the heroic mother telling like this guy who's going to unite the entire world well, at one she, point she, the story if, if, the, if his origin story is correct to be believed she was she she probably was pretty heroic in some sense like he was the father of a chief and um or his father was a chief and yeah he, then his father was was poisoned and got they got kicked out of the tribe so they had to live on the outskirts or whatever and they somehow they still survived somehow and but but without the the help of the tribe yeah, but his, um, fir- his first order of business was, hey, we've got all these warring tribes, and the normal order of business is we're fighting amongst each other. We'll take some of your wives, we'll take some of your horses, the men will kill, or we'll send you out somewhere else in the steppe, and we'll go our separate ways, and we'll see you again in 10 years and do it all over. And that had been going on for centuries before before his birth. So it wasn't anything new. But, no, 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 no. Yeah, but some something in his mind was like, you know what, what if... We united all of them, and that's kind of where he started. And that was sort of like the the nexus that he built his empire on was these these Mongolian tribal peoples that lived in the you know outer Mongolia, inner Mongolia, what we call now Mongolia, the country, parts of Russia, and all of them had this horse culture. They all they all had this this sort of this this shared mythology, sometimes a shared language, sometimes but but a shared a shared culture of living life on horseback and being nomadic. And that just seemed to be the perfect recipe to conquer the sedentary peoples of the world. And it's it, what I was uh, going to point out earlier is that line you read, Bennett, the, the last line of that first verse there was, says his name resounds in the world. 
you can literally go anywhere, virtually anywhere, and people have heard of Genghis Khan, which isn't even his real name. His name is actually Temujin. Genghis Khan is his title, right? Which means eternal Khan or eternal emperor. But it's amazing that you can literally go anywhere in any language. People have heard of him. And even today in Mongolia, there's statues of the guy. They just renamed their airport like last year to Genghis Khan Airport, (laughs) you know? And his name really does resound in the world. And so it's pretty amazing, like just the the persistence and what, what is it about this guy, this figure that makes people gravitate towards him is it is it living in the glory days you know how we kind of like you know how america used to be good or whatever is the same thing with mongolia hey in the 1200s man we were awesome make mongolia great again yeah (laughs) make mongolia great again return (laughs) so uh the who has this music video where oh man i can't remember what which one it is it's not wolf totem it's it's the other one that they've got but it starts with them watching soccer and eating Cheetos and goofing around in their like modern lives. And then they hear the traditional Mongol, man, maybe we should have just done that song. It, Cause it's, it's way more uh, like there's, there's, there's way more sort of like subtext to it, I, I think, but like next time, um, next time, next episode. Yeah. But they start, they start jamming on these instruments and, and they're singing and it's like this very self-consciously like reactionary like we gotta stop screwing around with all this modern stuff and get back on our horses and start being like genghis khan again um so yeah i I think for sure that's that's part of it yeah well i mean 30 i i had a um there's a guy i knew that served his mission in mongolia and he told me that's like 30 percent of mongolian population today is still nomadic. They're still living in the gears or the yurts or whatever. They're still moving around on horseback. So half, like half or a little more than half the population lives in Ulaanbaatar, the capital, but a lot of them are still doing the nomadic thing. And I don't know any, any other quote unquote modern country in the world where you're still living your ancestral way, or there's a large portion, at least a quarter of your population is still living the way their ancestors did a thousand years ago. And you could change very little, you know? Yeah, that's wild. That that that's And like, I mean, it's like it's like either that or they're like in like a floor spar mine or like it's like heavy industry and like it's not like and and it's uh, Ulaanbaatar from what I understand is one of the most polluted cities in the world. Like it's it's not a uh they don't have like a great modern urban like situation. So the alternative uh, the alternative to nomadic is is to be like a in a disgusting city basically. Well, I mean, it's because because it, a lot of it is like Stalinist infrastructure. Yeah, just I was gonna say to speak to that, they were literally communists and or a client state, which is a nice word for a puppet state of communist Russia until 1990. I mean, that's when they had their revolution, but they've still got like the communist statues in the middle of the city. And Ulaanbaatar is not the original name of the city. That literally means Red Warrior, which is freaking communist. And they you know that they changed that that to that name in like the 20s. So I think they're still mm. kind of coming out of the throes of communism. Yeah, as well. and wasn't it yeah. while they were under a communist rule they weren't able to even speak about Genghis Khan? Yeah, he was considered reactionary for the communist lead. And actually, um, during the time, I, I guess there was uh, some there was some talk of um, I don't think it was building a statue to him or something, but 
this is back during the Cold War, and the the Secretary of Mongolia, Secretary of State of Mongolia, uh, was dismissed by Communist Russia because of that, because he was basically kind of mm-hmm. pushing for you know that a little bit more of a nationalistic feel to their communist to their communism in Mongolia. It's pretty hard but, to make Genghis Khan a hero of the global proletariat. So, like, I I get it. Um, I, I do want to I do want to show like just read uh, some of this. It's it's Yuve Yuve Yu is the name of the song by the Who. I'll read a little bit. It's been so long eating and drinking, being merry. How strange! Taking our great Mongol ancestors' names in vain. How strange! Would not honor our oath and destiny. Why the valuable ethics of the ancestors become worthless? Hey, you traitor! Kneel down. Hey, prophecies, be declared. You're born in the ancestor's fate, sleeping deeply, can't be awakened, blindly declaring that only Mongols are the best. Born to live as nobles, yet can't unite as one. Why is it difficult to rise up, rise our nation up, etc.? So it's very, it's like very on the nose. Um, like it, it's clearly like, let's, let's be, let's be uh, a Khanate again. Oh, black banner, be awakened, be awakened. Oh, the Khanate, rise and rise forever. Yeah, they're 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 trying to return. They're trying to return pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. That God seems like uh, it's interesting that because c- c- I've heard of the Who and I've I've probably listened to that song, but I've never uh, known what the lyrics were. Well, and for a little bit of context on what we're talking about, I mean, the Mongols were known for many things, but one thing that seems to be a hallmark of these people is they're extremely hardy. I mean, they, they would live basically off their horses. They had this like symbiotic relationship with their horses. And so their horses could basically forage almost anywhere. These, these step ponies they would ride and they could survive a month the the Mongols could a month without food or water because they would literally all their horses. Most of them were mares. They were female and mm-hmm. they would drink the horse's milk. Sometimes they'd do a little incision on the horse and they drink their blood. And that's how they get their sustenance when they were low on food. And you could basically just live like that for a month. And their enemies, they would chop their head off and make a cup out of their skulls and drink out of their skulls. And so you go from that to living in like a post-communist, brutalist architecture wasteland. It's like, you know what? I kind of like our glory days a little bit. Maybe, yeah, they were violent, but hey, we had some pride and people respected us and people had actually heard of Mongolia, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Maybe, Maybe we should go back to that Pax Mongolica. I mean, I think about I, I think about uh, just the other day. I was I was looking at the weather in in Harare, which is the capital of Zimbabwe, which was once Rhodesia, and uh, and we and call Cape it Town, Salisbury, South Africa, here. Salisbury. Yeah, Salisbury, and you know uh, uh, San Diego and the Gold Coast in Australia. And I was thinking about sort of the uh, the uh, the Anglo Imperium that, that that Cecil Rhodes was trying to build. And like, yeah, you know, uh, uh, it, it's the same like ambivalence about conquering, but like, be, like the, the self confidence, the self assuredness, the uh, the will to to be the best is is very is very admirable, and and you wish that you could you wish that you could belong to something that had that kind of confidence. Yeah, I always wonder if that if that kind of confidence or that drive is, is lost, like with, with the advent of modernity, like when I was my, my introduction to history classes at BYU Hawaii, that seemed to be like the prevailing theme was, well, what is modernity? Can you define it? Okay. What is it? Is it a positive or a negative? And it's almost always a negative, but it, 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 
I don't know. I mean, you can't get away from it now because progress can only progress. And, you know, we're now, now we have this time where we like to think back on, oh, the good old days and like our glory days. And like, why can't I be more like rustic and hardy, like my great, great, great grandfathers. And there may not, unless we have some sort of a post-apocalyptic, you know, nuclear holocaust that forces us to live that way i don't think you can ever actually get back to that you can try and larp all you want and it's kind of fun to do that but um i, I still i, I mean, still can't but feel it the twinge of sadness that is lost you know I mean, genghis khan's like great grandsons you know it was like one it was like one generation removed from his death because he, he died when kublai khan was young mm-hmm. um his his grandson but i mean basically right after kublai khan it it was like, you know, it's like Jubbalub the okay and Jubbalub the died pretty early. And like, it's not, they don't like, they're not extraordinary uh, rulers that they sort of fall off almost immediately. And a lot of it's because it was the, it was the, they sort of got, uh, they adopted sort of like the, the, the palace culture of the Han and became sort of uh, emasculated and, and fat and lazy basically as soon as they were exposed to that kind of wealth. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a saying, um, I'm going to paraphrase it and probably butcher it, but it's like the, the, the wood shoes go up the stairs in empire and the silk slippers come down. And it's that whole idea that, you know, great men, you know, create good times, good times, create weak men and that whole cycle. And you're exactly right, Bennett. Cause that's what happened is like within 50 years of this guy dying, um, you know, they, they had conquered, a large chunk of the world, but within a few years of that it turns to infighting and they just basically can't hold a candle to this guy's legacy and the type of unifying figure he was. And I think part of that is probably that a loss of that, that edge that made him what he was that living on the step, you know, that, that made him, that made him like that sort of hard bitten kind of guy he was that would have to do something like this, conquer the world. Should we, uh, we only got to the first yeah. verse. Should we keep going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's so, keep going. Uh, the next, I'll, I'll do the next one. Um, the the next two lines is kind of like the chorus, which is the courageous Mongol Genghis, the sublime Lord Genghis. And then the next verse is, even in burning wounds, a mind strong as steel, like temporal swords, as powerful as a planetary bird. Now, we were talking before the show about those lines, like temporal swords, as powerful as a planetary bird. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Because... I'm thinking that that is not that, that some 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 of that's lost in translation. Some of the the power of those lines. Yeah, I I, I have a feeling those are in reference to the uh, the shamanist religion that that Genghis Khan was he was very devout in because it's uh, I mean it's an interesting religion. Tengris we talked about a little bit, but um, yeah, I think like a. Planetary bird must refer to some type of uh, god or something like that. I'm thinking. I mean, it's funny because when I put it into Google Translate, it's like not even it's it's not even the same like words. <laughs> so like, I yeah. feel silly being like I feel silly like trying to parse like what what this translation might mean. Yeah, but but it's it, so so what it says on uh, on Google Translate is from the middle of the fire, hard as steel on earth as strong as a bird. So I don't know. It's maybe planetary bird, like on earth as strong as a bird. I don't know. Um, oh, interesting. The, the, I know uh, Mongolia, there's like lots of falconry mm-hmm. there, right? 
I wonder if there's if there's the tie-in. Well, that. we talked about so, earlier, like the whole the idea of the sky, right? The sky god, and where's a bird make his abode in the sky? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fire surgery, fire surgery from the middle, is that the so the even in burning wounds, so something to do with uh, something to do with getting cut up and burned. I mean, you know, maybe that's uh, maybe that's uh, maybe it's cauterizing a wound. Yeah, because he's so he's he's tough as nails. Even in burning wounds, his mind is strong as steel. I'd buy that for a dollar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. For sure. So, and then after that, all we have is the, the chorus again, the courageous Mongol Genghis, the sublime Lord Genghis. Do you want to take the, the last verse there, uh, Scotty? Yep. Blessed by the sky above, possessed half the world, ingrained in his spirit in the majestic and mighty world. Ingrained, ingrained is his spirit. Sorry, in the majestic and mighty world. Yeah, it's just kind of further building him up as this uh, larger than life character, almost a deity. But definitely somebody that has the mandate of heaven, right? For for his yes, conquest. yes. He, he's like he's like yeah. a. I mean, he's like a a demigod, basically, right? Blessed by the sky above makes it seem like he's. Yeah, the mandate of heaven, uh, more more than more than a normal person. Uh, Sean, you're muted. Sorry about that. Um, the, the song has the chorus one more time than it ends there. And that's all we have to work with. But um, we, we've kind of been coming back to this this idea of like persistence. You know, like like things that persist. And and Bennett, you're talking about this guy as like a you know um, Chinggis Khan. If you're if you're speaking Mongolian, Temujin. If you're saying his actual name, like how. He he, sort of a, a an experiment, if you will, in in immortality. You know, trying to achieve immortality through your own your own actions, your own works. And I, I think a case can be made on on both sides because, as we talked about, this guy's empire, the Mongol Empire, did persist much longer, uh, much you know, a lot a long time past his death. Um, the Mongol Empire lasted for. I think it was like it's itself as, as intact piece, I think for about a hundred years, but you kind of felt the the ripples or the repercussions of that empire for up until the, almost the modern age. Um, I mean, you have, you have successor States to the Mongol empire that existed all the way until like the 1850s. You've got the Mughal empire in India, you've got the Crimean Khanate, you know, in, in Crimea, you know, that's in Europe. And um, that, that all sort of claimed, direct lineage back to this guy this one guy well well and even um, if it's not like the the intact empire like the the trade routes the relationships and and stuff like that that Silk Road yeah that um that came about because of this empire um well, it's his deeds. was all due to him it's uh it's it, it's the contrast between uh I guess I guess the contrast that I would draw is not like because obviously the fact that we're talking about him right now in 2022 means that that his deeds uh, uh, persisted. Um, it, it's it's more to do with uh, is the answer just to like have a bunch of kids? I, I feel I feel like a lot of a lot of uh, people in this sort of like trad dad culture they want to think like I'll just I'll just have kids and that'll be my my legacy that'll be with the mark that I leave on the world. And uh, it, the the uh, the Greek notion of of immortality that, that Bap talks about a lot is a uh, kleosophaton, which is undying fame. 
and it's the idea that your 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 deeds will ring out and poets will will sing of you forever which is which is sort of what he achieved and i mean like in terms of in terms of like his uh his material impact on the world it's pretty obvious that like he probably made more of a difference through the millions of genetic lines that he snuffed out than than the ones he created um yeah and i mean yeah so so it's it's uh and and the idea of Kleos Afton is 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 complicated uh too but but um just it's it's interesting to think about like the the most extreme cases the most extreme human mortal movers in the world and and what it all amounted to yeah well, and it's almost like, I mean, what, what legacy is more important? The fact that everyone, whether they want to or not in the world is pretty much descended from this guy and maybe either doesn't know it or they know it and they don't like it, or there's a handful that does like that. Or the fact that we all know him for his, his deeds, right? I mean, is there, is there, which one has a higher value, you know? Um, it depends, and- it depends on what, at what point in history you're at. I think maybe if you're, if you're like, one or two or three generations past him, then maybe it is more, more important to be his literal descendant. But um, as time goes on, I think that answer changes probably. Well, and what's ironic about, about that, the, the, the statement of which one has more value is he did both, right? Yeah. He basically like got his DNA into the blood, the, into the bloodstream of history, but he also conquered the largest chunk of the world that anyone's ever seen. And so whether you know him because you're related to him or whether you know him because his actions, either way, he comes out on top, right? And so like you're saying, um, Bennett, with this whole like trad dad movement of like, oh, I'm just going to have like 8 billion kids and that's how I'll leave my legacy. And that does work to some degree. But I think if you don't have that, um, a type of culture or a type of family structure where you're reflecting back on your ancestors and who you descended from and what brought, what brought you to where you are today, that's not going to work as well. So you, you have to kind of create um, an environment where your legacy can persist by not only having those children, but also like leaving them something, teaching them something, teaching about where they came from, so to speak. Well, right. yeah. And basically it's, it seems like, it seems like the way that they did, cause I, I looked at sort of the, uh, the families of, of, of Genghis Khan and, and his, his next, I think, three generations of rulers. And it seems to be the case that basically they had their like monogamous one family that they actually like cared about and maybe one or two concubines who they would sort of maintain a lifestyle for, but like their kids wouldn't inherit and they wouldn't like, it, it was sort of like, you get to be rich and, and high status because you're you're the Khan's concubine, but you don't get to, you're not you're not a sort of a, a political player. And then, uh, but the, but the one wife, the main wife, was like raising the heir to the throne, and uh, you know the, the the heir would be sort of chosen from among those children. And then it seems like everything else, all the other extracurriculars, were just. It, it, no, no contact, no involvement, which I mean, of course, like t- t- tens of thousands of people. So like you, how could you possibly, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah. Uh, so, so uh, in, in a sense, like in, in terms of how he actually acted as a father to his children that he was acknowledging as his, his, uh, his heirs, 
it's more sort of scaled down and standard than than would appear from <laughs> from from how much from how many kids he produced. Well, and I, I think I mean we we talk about how you know people may not be familiar with like what you know what he's accomplished, or they may like disparage Genghis Khan because oh you killed my you know eighth great grandfather a thousand years ago in China. Um, but uh, Dan Carlin, going, going back again to uh, Wrath the Cons, in the very beginning, he talks about how as a as a college, like an early college student, um, he wrote a paper on Genghis Khan, like did a research paper on him and kind of wrote glowingly of like how great the cavalry was and their tactics were so just unstoppable. And his teacher at the time was Chinese. Like it was in, this is in the US, but his teacher was Chinese. And his teacher basically gave him an F on his paper <laughs> and brought him into the office. And he's like, look, some people don't, some, some people are basically, basically what he said was some people are still mad. <laughs> They're still mad at Genghis Khan, like, at, at least in China. Um, he's not looked at as like this unifying, like father figure, father of the country. He's instead, he's looked at as like this butcher, you know, literally Hitler, if you want to call it in, in today's, today's you know, language. But it, I think a lot of it does depend on, okay, where are you from and how, how, like how, tied into your country's or your family's history are you kind of will determine what your opinion of this guy is. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, the estimates are he killed 11% of the population of the world. Yeah. Yeah. So- th- something like 37 million people or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. I-, I read somewhere, I don't know how true this is, but some climate scientists say that because of the depopulation that he caused, the uh, the earth actually cooled down because of how many people he killed. Yeah. I, I, re- I read that too that it says that it was actually a good thing because he scrubbed 700 million tons of carbon from the atmosphere <laughs> and allowing forests to regrow regrow yeah yeah Wild. he's a he's a he's, he's a climate hero <laughs> yeah that's uh that's that's <laughs> he was a he was an esg hero <laughs> yes he was um what, what, what's crazy and you can't get into uh talking about Genghis Khan without going over some crazy numbers. Um, but he did it with only an army of a hundred hundred thousand people. So his, his army, but which, which is big, but it's not super big, even for the time. Um, he, yeah. he was, he was regularly going against armies bigger than that. And, and he would deploy maybe a 10th of that per battle or whatever. Like he's, it wasn't a big army. They're just super effective. Average KD spread 370 to one. Right? Yeah. That's pretty amazing, especially for that era. Um, but the secret to their success was basically archery and horseback, like their horsemanship. So not only could they survive just living off their horses, but every Mongol warrior would have like two or three horses to his retinue. And so what would happen is they could ride at full speed till the horse they were riding got tired and they'd switch mounts and keep riding full speed. And they could do that two or three times. And so they could travel like a hundred miles a day, which in this era was completely unheard of. That's like space age speed. Yeah. You, right? you read about any ancient warfare and speed is everything basically. Right. Yeah. Well, and their tactics involved, I mean, it's been, it's been described as like being attacked by a, by a, a swarm of bees, but the, 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 they would, they would uh, be divided into these small units and um, they kind of had like, you know, the various commanders of their small um, units of men and they were divided by like, you know, 10, 50, 100, 150. And what they do is they, they, they 
they're still doing pitched battles here when they're meeting Europeans and the Europeans all line up with their pikemen or whatever in a small contingent of cavalry. And the Mongols would send like a thousand horse archers out there. They'd gallop up, like shoot the crap out of them with, with archers, with archers, or as my uh, professor in, in um, history would say, rain pointy death down on them. <laughs> and, then, and then just gallop away and they, they're untouchable. And they would do this so many times. Oftentimes people would just would just forfeit the the battle based on that alone. But if they did try to attack the 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 horse archers wear them down so much, they had their fighting spirit was almost was so sapped um, that anything that was left would get mopped up by these lancers that they all had also on horseback that the Mongols would employ. And that was basically their entire tactic in every single battle. Uh, yeah, and people in- just didn't know how to cope with it. In, in StarCraft, we call that kiting. They would uh, <laughs> pull aggro and then withdraw and then, yeah, real quick hit yeah. them and then move. Yeah, StarCraft you can actually up. do that. Uh, in Age of Empires, you can actually be the Mongols and do exactly this with their uh, unique unit, which is, oddly enough, a horse charger. <laughs> horse yeah. So, yeah, they're pull, they pulling effective. aggro way before StarCraft. <laughs> They invented it. They they actually did invent a lot of military tactics and and like actual technology. Putting a hook on their spear to you know pull someone down or whatever things like that. Like they they uh, revolutionized a lot of things that way. Well, things are uh, uh, winding down a little bit. I, any other uh, um, parting thoughts we have about about the the great con? I've got I've got a couple, but uh, I'll let. I'll let uh, the good doctor share his last thoughts because I'm always I'm always here I'm always talking so I don't want to monopolize. <laughs> as you uh, yeah no I I I don't know where I uh, really wanted to go with this I feel like we covered the the, the big things. Uh, it's a fascinating topic and I wish I knew more about it. There is a book called The Secret History of the Mongols that I'm I'm planning to check out. That's supposedly like the uh, the almost scriptural document. Uh, that, that yeah, that, that seems to be for... the only source of this time period and like the seminal work on the Mongols. It's what they got. It's what they got. And it's got and, a cool I mean, mysterious it's... name. So, yeah, it does. And, and it's like like uh, Kublai Khan was 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 literate, as far as I know, or he, he was at least very interested in inculcating literacy. So uh, it's it's a little bit surprising that the. Uh, the history is so shrouded in myth, but I guess, I mean, I think he was like 12 when Genghis died. So maybe he, maybe he grew up and, and learned to read or something and then had to kind of piece it together from, you know, kind of fish stories that his dad or his grandpa's like bros would tell. I don't know. It's interesting to think about though. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's all I got. Um, well, we, we already talked about like this, this legacy, this guy has left and like, you know, just, Everything in Mongolia is named after Genghis Khan or some version of his name. In fact, they, there's there's been um, in, they've introduced legislation in Mongolia to basically regulate the use of his name to pre- to prevent it from being too trivialized and too over commercialized because everyone is just Genghis Khan everything. Genghis Khan uh, macaroni and cheese. Genghis Khan the lunchbox. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and and one, vain, one question. Vain repetitions, right? Right. Well, I so I have one more one more uh, fun fact that I'll share relating to this guy, and then I have a question. I want to see if you guys. I don't. I don't know the answer to it, but I want to see if you guys um, have any thoughts on it. But um, so part of this guy's conquest, he conquered most of Asia. Part he got all the way to Poland, um, but 
some of the first territories he conquered was China and he pummeled the Chinese and the Koreans and the Japanese. But there was two different times where, um, both where his, his successors were attacking the Japanese home islands and they were disrupted by a massive storm in the sea of, I think it's called the sea of Japan, the one that's between China and and, uh, Japan and all the Mongol ships basically like sank, which basically prevented them from attacking Japan those two separate times. And so the Japanese called that storm a divine wind or in Japanese kamikaze. And that's where the term kamikaze comes from that persisted all the way into World War II is this, it's, it literally means divine wind. And it's a word that, that its origins come from this divine wind that protected the Japanese people from the Mongol hordes. By smashing their ships. Um, and that's something like, yeah. Yeah, and then they use use it, and then it turns into a plane smashing into a ship. But I guess the, the you know the they still the, the spirit of the uh, of the of the word is still there. But so my my question my question is this, and this will be my parting thought: is what do, what do you guys think it is that makes people look positively on Genghis Khan when they could look at him as someone like a Stalin or a Mao or a Hitler? Like why why is he looked at so much more positively than other than other men of history who have done similar things maybe just more recently? I think a lot of it's just recency. I, th- I think a lot of it's just that uh, he's been gone a while, so now he's like pirates, or uh, you know, uh, you know nobody's mad at the Assyrians even though they would like stick a hook through your nose and your ears and drag you on a chain by your face, like. Uh, and they'd like kill all of your relatives and they'd send you like, and everyone you ever heard of scatter you to the winds and you'd never see anybody you knew ever again. Like it, it, it goes from being, it goes from being horrible to being like kind of metal. And uh, I think, <laughs> I think, like, well, it's based now because it's a thousand years later. Yeah. I, th- I think Genghis Khan's comfortably metal at this point. Yeah. And yeah it's, it's, actually, almost, it's almost hard to conceive of that kind of violence. Um, yeah. And widespread. Like like the the numbers that we're talking about is just wild, and so it, I think part of that is like we just can't even think about that. It's almost unbelievable the yeah. number of the, the the number. Oh, I killed ten percent of the world's population a thousand years ago or whatever, and it's like what I can't I can't we can't fathom those kind of numbers, right? Um, I but I also think he wasn't I, ideological. Like it's kind of like what I was saying about like him not being racist, like. Like we, we, we've gotten so used to ideological struggle that the story of the last 20, the, the last of the 20th century was, was, uh, this, this intense ideological struggle between these, between these, well, three, uh, massively propagandized, massively, uh, quasi religious empires with this, like this mm-hmm. really totalizing worldview and Genghis just. Genghis just seemed to like fighting and he didn't. And and he, you know, one of the ways that his empire, like kind of one of the ways he kept the peace was like, he didn't care what God you worshiped. And he he just kind of wanted you to like pay your taxes and not, not get in his way. Not, you know, don't, don't, don't talk shit and don't like, and, and basically uh, if you were willing to play ball, you would be left alone. And I think there's actually a, 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 I think it's mold bug who talks about like, what if an alien invader came and he said, I'm in charge of everything now and I just care about gold and I just want to make sure that like you guys give me my gold shipment and 
everything else is uh, is just about making sure that the gold's there. So I'm going to make sure the economy is pretty strong and you guys have what you need to go get me the gold. And other than that, you can do what you want. Just make sure I get my gold. And um, and I, basically Moldbug's case is that like that would be not a bad way to live under the under the boot of the uh, the alien uh, gold dictator. And uh, and I, th- I think Genghis Khan kind of rhymes with that, like utterly savage to to his enemies, uh, but like more or less hands off to uh, to his subjects. And I think I think probably the reason for that is that he he wasn't like he wasn't trying to institute some utopian ideological program, like right. Pol Pol Pot was trying to like change the whole dynamic between urban and rural and educated and uneducated. And he had this like big, he had big hoop dreams about what he was going to do for, for, uh, for Kampuchea and Genghis Khan. Nope. He just, just wanted to, just wanted to get some loot, get some babes. I can respect that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I was talking about at the beginning where like, I was thinking about what his motivations were because they weren't like ideological. It, it, It was, I mean, essentially to, to get as much gain as possible, like, or however you want to word that. And this, I call it a strategy of, uh, of like you, if you surrender, then you'll be my best friend. If you don't, we will utterly destroy everything, like every living thing in, in a brutal way. Um, and it's, it's one of these things that like, it's a strategy to, to gain a reputation like that, where it's like, oh, if I go with you, then I'll actually might even gain from being in your empire. So it's like, uh, it's, it's a prag- pragmatism in a way to, to operate like that. Um, and to be as brutal as possible to the people that, that, that do oppose you. So, so people can see the, the, the biggest contrast possible between being my friend right. and being my enemy. And the, one of the, one of the points that Moldbug makes about his dictator is like, you know, he's, he's, he's assuming that like this dictator has quantum plasma, unovercomable technical advantages, weapons advantages. And so like he can, he can, you know, basically turn you to dust if, if you show the slightest resistance. And he was like, that, that is a way of keeping the peace. That is a way of, of, of ending the destructive conflict it's kind of sounding like Darth Vader there, but um, <laughs> like, you know, putting all that to bed, that's world peace, right? Because nobody's going to mess around. We have around that now. With- it's literally called nuclear deterrence. We have it now. They just call it right. deterrence. <laughs> right. And, and the problem there is that there's no human being. Oh, I mean, this would be Moldbug's problem with it is that there's no human being. There's this, there's this distributed, unaccountable, bureaucracy that like kind of can't be negotiated with and like like i mean that's what the russians are up against right now is is this uh this nato expansion i don't want to get too far afield but like but like this this uh you know why does nato want to expand into ukraine well because nato would like to expand nato exists to oppose the soviet union which no longer exists so it's just this sort of growing institution growing for its own sake and nobody's really the boss of it progress because progress yeah right right right. it it exists it exists to increase its itself increase its power its size everything but no one ever asks like do we still need nato 
Well, it doesn't no. even ask, it doesn't even ask ex, ask itself. It's it it just does, right? There's no it, self like, to ask. There's no consciousness. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think I think you're right, Bennett, about like why why the great con here gets a pass on things that people would consider war crimes on a major scale today. Um, and I think time heals all wounds. That's, I think that's one piece. I think, I think you hit the nail on the head too, with the whole ideology thing, because nowadays you're like, everyone's got an ideology, right? That's, that's, that's our, our presentism, our, our, um, you know, judging by the past, by, by today's standards. So we think, Oh, every, everything that motivates somebody is something I can relate to. And it's always got to be my current worldview, whatever my version of like freedom is or capitalism or what, whatever it is that that's what motivated everybody. Genghis Khan wanted to unify the world so they could be free from the Chinese dynasties that were oppressing them or whatever it is. And it's like, no dude, he probably just wanted like some more horses. He, and he, loot. he grew up in tribal, you know? in, in tribal warfare in tribal, like, like his, like, when you were a part of a tribe that in the, in the step then is like everything was for the good of the tribe. Right. And so like, I think as he expanded it, that, that mindset didn't necessarily stop inside his brain. Like he was just going for the good of the tribe and expanding the tribe. Like, and, and I think that's a mindset, like you said, that's not that, that it's, it's hard to um, find a map for, for this, for modern. For, in well, yeah. Yeah. Like, well, you mentioned like how do you how do you get back to that that way of thinking, and I, I basically what what you're kind of describing is the will to power. It's like uh, it feels good to conquer, it feels good to be strong, it feels good to to uh, dominate, and yeah, that's sort of a foreign language for us. Well, I, you know, well, well, well I, we hear that and, we, and to, we immediately think Hitler, or right? Like it's it's well, like unless some, some you can horrible person, unless you can launder it through religion or ideology or like, like, no, no, no. I want to conquer so that we can have, so that little girls can, can learn calculus in Afghanistan. Like, so there can be a gay bar in Djibouti. Like it's, it's, it's uh, that's how you have to wash it to make it make sense to these people. Well, that's, that's, that's how we've been able to sell it so long. Is like no 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 like here's the thing we got to go to war for gay marriage we got to go to war for whatever your pet ideology is that's what we're that's what we're bringing to the world so that makes it okay so our 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 war crime is okay but but th- those yeah. are all just window dressings to will the power right yeah I mean Hegemony. I think I, I mean I think when it is I guess what I would say is I think most of these people are fooling themselves as much as they're fooling anybody else mm-hmm. um hundred percent think that they're quasi sincere but yeah they really just want to be in charge of everything so that they can make all the rules and uh me too so you know i get it yeah i think we all have that to some degree but i think also you can't just go oh you know what i'm gonna start like drinking mare's milk and like riding my horse a lot and getting really good with a bow I don't think you, you could do that your whole life. And I don't think you're still going to have that same will, that same drive, that same will to power as like a Genghis Khan. Had. Well, you'll just get shot. You know, I mean, that's, and, it's, <laughs> no, that's, that's a big yeah. part of this well, is it's, like, it's, it's, you're, you're, you're responding to a completely different technological environment whose problems are not solved. I think, I think a lot of what guys are trying to do when they're going to the return game and the, the trad game is they're like, well, I want to go back to a time when 
the when I could look at the answer key and like the 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 hacks that made people win. Uh, I, I know those hacks, so I'd go be a horse lord, or or mm-hmm. you know I I you know not necessarily literally like thinking about time travel, but like they're imagining a world that makes sense, but but the but the world is anti-inductive. The, the 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 fact that it makes sense to you means it would it would it would unravel immediately because all of the other people who are just as smart as you would figure out the same things and you'd end up right back where you are. So so yeah, it's it's I think taking that mindset of of um, the desire to excel, the desire to be the best, the desire to dominate, and then doing the really hard nitty gritty tactical math of of what does that look like here and now? What are the uh, what are the channels through which power flows here? It's not horseback. Yeah, it's not think, archery. And uh, due to um, Genghis Khan's uh, pragmatism, his uh, practicality, he wouldn't use the same. He obviously wouldn't use the same tactics he used back then. He would use the tools we have now, which um, which we're figuring out, right? Um, it's uh, <laughs> he'd be it, an it's NGO a game on the ground. <laughs> what, what, what's that? What was that? I, I said he'd he'd start an NGO. He'd st- <laughs> he'd start he'd start acquiring blackmail on some public figures. <laughs> he'd probably be in a bit. Honestly, he'd probably be a Bitcoin guy. <laughs> he might be. I a mean, he'd be doing that, the NTX thing. <laughs> is 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 modern day conquering like what Google's doing? Just buying. Uh, buying small companies and just like taking is, over small is Jeff, is, is Jeff Bezos con maxing yeah, right yeah, now? Is that what I'm hearing? I mean, if, if you think about um, a, a, another mold bug thing is uh, he, he talks about um, corporations as kingdoms. And like, if, if that's the way you want to think about it, like it's, it kind of makes sense. But there's, I mean, in, in theory, yes, but yeah, in theory, yeah. Amazon is so dug in like a tick on the backside of the federal government. And like, there's no, uh, it is not, it is not independent or sovereign in the way that like the Dutch East India company was. Um, it's, it's very much a, a, a logistical arm of the state and Jeff is a convoluted system. Jeff is a functionary. Elon has been a functionary is trying to be something else and it remains to be seen uh, how successful he'll be at that. But I, yeah, no, I, I think um, that's always the challenge, right? If, if you're, if you're living within this giant Leviathan, then your, your pathway to personal power means being like kind of this Gavin Newsom figure who says all the right things and kisses all the right asses and, and, uh, you know, uh, certainly in the short run, I actually, I actually believe that about Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think Arnold Schwarzenegger was a classic will to power fascist Nietzschean. And he decided that the right way to go about that was to be like a centrist, basically liberal in California and run for governor and get as much power as he possibly could. Uh, but it, it, you can see the spiritual impact of that on him and now he's now he sucks yeah yeah i mean you you can try and think like oh that'll be my strategy to like i'll infiltrate the system and but but to, to infiltrate the, the system, system will you infiltrate have to you internalize yeah you have to it, internalize it, it, it corrupts whatever it touches yeah exactly you can't escape the corruption yeah. 
Um, well, and but to some res- to some respect, this whole like return movement, like this idea, I, I get it because I feel like today some people call it nationalism, but this this tie to your past, this tie to your ancestors, this tie to your clan, your people, a lot of that's been lost with modernity and and just late stage capitalism. And so, I think a lot of us are just trying to awaken that that blood memory, you know, which which I I, I believe is a real thing, mm-hmm. but it's not something that we have today. I have to go back like so many generations to find something that's distinctly like my family or my people or English, you know, like, because my ancestors are from England. So something that's distinctly English and not something that's like a, just a, you know, a slight different to what we do now in America. Cause they're, it, you know, with capitalism and globalization, it's basically, we're all same versions of the of the same thing, yeah. different sides of the same coin. It, it, that ta- makes sense. it takes intentionality to do it nowadays. It, it yeah. used to be ingrained. Like, like you were, ju- that's just how it was. Like you didn't have to try. Now it, it's, you have to be intentional, especially um, th- like depending on where you grew up. Like I grew up in Utah, I'm a Utah and uh, a lot of times Utahns get crapped on. And so it's like uh, a lot of Utahns will um, eschew a lot of the, the isms that come from, this this uh, state and so it, sometimes f- from my point of view it's like i've actively tried not to to eschew those and and be who i am like be wh- like this is where my family is and has been for generations and and so this is this is who i am and i and it's like you have to choose to be proud of it to, to an extent and and, and, it, and not everyone is affected about like like this um like the, there are places even in america where it's it's cool and good to be proud of where you're from and where your family's from. But in some cases it, it takes intentionality. Well, that's kind of the whole Desnat Deseret nationalism movement, yeah. right? This whole idea of like, we're proud of our past. We're not going to hide behind it. We're not going to try and apologize for it. Mm-hmm. We're like, Hey, this is, this is who we are. This, and the, the past we have is what made us who we are. And we should teach that to the, you know, the, the coming generation because we should have, you know, we should turn the hearts of our children to the fathers and vice versa, so to speak. Because our history is pretty badass and, and it, it, and it's kind of disnified almost. And I think that's to our detriment. Like, um, the way a lot of our history is taught, even within the church is disnified. And so that's what makes it uncool. Um, if it was taught like, like a Genghis Khan, like, like not necessarily Genghis Khan, we didn't do that, but if it was taught like a, like it was, like it happened, like the reality of it, it wouldn't yeah. be as, as uh, quote unquote lame. Well, that's what, I, that's what I've been trying to teach my kids now is like, because I, I grew up in the church as well. I'm not from Utah. I live in Utah now, but I'm from California. But like my family is uh, rolls deep in the church, so to speak. I mean, I'm telling my kids like, hey, we I have a great, great grandfather who was killed at Hans Mill. My great, great grandfather, Oborn, is was buried with the Martin Handcart Company in Green River, Wyoming. His body is still out there, buried. Like, and, and I think that's something that's important to not lose with this advance of just everything being fake and gay, homogenous, <laughs> homogenized, you know, bland, you know, globalization that's, that's sold to the world. And just, I don't, I'm not, you know, not for that's me. the curse. That's the curse curse with which the earth is being smitten. In my opinion is a uh, curse of curse of sameness curse of somebody posted a picture of like, the skyline of like Hong Kong and Nairobi and Cleveland and like the, it's all it's indistinguishable. They all look exactly the same. Can't tell them apart. 
Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had a and... class in college. I had a class. Sorry. I'm mean, go ahead. Sorry. Ben. No, no, no. You, you. you. No, that's right. Go ahead. No, I was going to say I had, I had a class in college. It was literally titled uh, modern nationalism and globalization. And mm. that's exactly what that was about is how do you balance this idea of, okay, these are my people. This is my country. This is my shared history and culture with this globalization where it's like this sameness sold you know, across the world. And one example I gave in a class is this idea of the country of Ireland, you know, because like, do you guys know their official language? It's Irish, but how many mm -hmm. people in Ireland actually speak Irish? It's like 5% of the population speak it with any fluency, you know, but, and, and, but I, I respect the game. I respect the, the, the idea, you know, but same with <clears throat> Wales. Like I think it's yeah, same with Welsh. Yeah. Who yeah. speaks Welsh? That was the, that was like the second yeah. language the book of Mormon was ever translated into was Welsh. Who speaks Welsh now? A bunch of like old people in Wales and it's dying out very quickly. And you'll have people who try to like LARP at it, but it's almost like we've reached a point of no return. Like, you know, with, with this idea of modernity and globalization that we can't, we can't go back to, okay, I'm going to go back to like living in a, with my clan, my tribe, speaking our language and our culture. You, you can't avoid it anymore. Well, there's no Honestly, returning, right? It, it, you have yeah. to build, you have to go forward and inc use what, use the past to make the future better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sympathetic to to Balaji Srinivasan's idea that that uh, essentially what is happening is that geographic and eth ethnic loyalties are becoming incoherent because we just we our 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 bodies and our words travel too efficiently too seamlessly all over the world and uh, we are just we're just too able to to connect with foreigners and and too able to we're, we're sort of we're sort of packed in too tight with people we hate in our geographic neighborhood mm -hmm. and so uh it's i mean his 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 vision is basically that that some kind of there's going to be some kind of technological solution for a distributed state where uh, you're the the thing that the the primary unit of politics is not going to be these these geographically circumscribed ethnoi uh, population groups kin groups because that's that's no longer coherent they don't exist anymore uh, to some extent that's a that's a consequence of policy but to some extent it's also just technology it's something that's that's difficult to stop and so. Part of what I am trying to do with all of my various online projects is to locate my tribe all over the world and 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 connect them in a way that is more real than just we follow each other on Twitter or we vote the same way. Who cares? Mm -hmm. Like finding finding your real the people that you really uh, uh, have that sense of asabia, the sense of peoplehood with. Right. Yeah. And that, that's, uh, I mean, that's, uh, if anyone knows it's you, how difficult that is. Um, and it's an iterative journey, right? Like you start on a single platform where you meet each other and then multiple platforms where you have kind of a distributed way of communicating. And then it's, and then whatever the next step and step and step. And, but, um, but having that goal is, is important. Um, hugely complicated yeah absolutely I, uh, every time the 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 idea of like a 
like a digital nation state or whatever that is like I still have the hardest time wrapping my head around it. Just like the the, the forgetting the, the physical part of it. Yeah, I've I've heard his his take on what that will look like. I don't know that his t- like it, I don't know that his take necessarily resonates with me about about what it will be. But I but, but what I do feel pretty confident about is that he's right that the current system is not a coherent map of the way people actually understand themselves and and right. understand their relationships. Uh, yeah, that makes like, sense. Like, so, so trying to replicate that digitally. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you do it. I don't know. I don't even know what it would look like. But I know that the the way we do it now is is already ceasing to make sense. Right. So something will replace it. Do you think maybe the the glue that connects us might be the determining factor? So because a lot of times what we connect on now is oh we have shared mutual. I mean Scott and I listen to the same music, so now we're friends. Mm-hmm. You know, and, that, and that, not not to disparage our friendship, Scott, but you know, it, it, do we need something that can persist more than that, more than just shared interests or close I mean, th- proximity? Th- this kind of gets back to the um, Genghis Khan's progeny, right? His is like what what you not what unified them, and then what disunified them, like what what separated them. Um, and I think it is what, what it comes down to is like a, a shared. I, it's it's kind of hard because at what point like you said like we share music we share some political views we share some this that but like how much does it take to to actually unify somebody with somebody else so like, i don't know I, I think all the time about where the family proclamation says the family is the fundamental unit of society mm-hmm because I think that is such a profound statement that just went completely under the radar because we, th- because we thought, we thought that what they were saying was family is important, mm-hmm. but I don't think that's what they were saying. I think they're saying the family is the fundamental unit of society. The family is the, is the dimension of analysis at which policy should take place. And what partly what I think that can mean is that Politics, ultimately, the, the wellspring of politics, the first states were families. And, you know, some, some like Nietzscheans and communists and libertarians, a lot of like their model of the first state was the stationary bandit, right? Like I'm a robber and a raider and I'm stealing stuff. And then I'm just going to sit tight and have a deal where everybody gives me stuff instead of me stealing it. And that's safer and less friction for everybody and that's how the state began uh which i think is bogus i think basically you had guys like father abraham who were uh powerful and charismatic and blessed by god and their family his his sphere of influence came to encapsulate a broader set of people than his immediate family he kind of had a retinue he had a he had a following and he intermarried with some of them. And I, I basically, I guess what I would say is the way that you become more than just acquaintances, the way that you permanently ally is the way that your ancestors permanently allied, which is by marriage. You become 
you, you, you unite your interests in essentially a child who is the heir of both houses or a set of children. Literally united in blood. Right. Right. And I think, I, I think ultimately, um, you know, one of the things that, that uh, w- one of the reasons why Genghis Khan's, you know, millions and millions of offspring uh, reflect just the circumstances of wherever they were uh, when they were born, uh, when that line was created, is that there was no effort to select, effort to select their mates, effort to select like their, their family circumstances, apart from just whatever was going on in that, in that, in that region. So like basically what I would say is you are, you are looking for people who are the right sort of people with whom you would like to ally in that sense, who you'd like your children to be like them. And you'd like to have their qualities and to have their culture. And uh, the idea that the idea that we outsource all of these decisions to the the kids who really badly want to have sex is just the dumbest thing I can imagine. That's just the, like the, almost nobody is less qualified uh, to make that decision. And I, you know, there's there's a there's a there's an argument to be made that there's like there's wisdom in the blood and, and sort of what, uh, what gets your motor running is, 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 is something to be, to be weighed in the weighed in the balances. I think that's true, but I think families should have much more of a role in, uh, the type of people that you marry, like, like at minimum in like a really strongly advisory capacity. Well, um, I actually, uh, need to get going i have a um a uh a recital yeah dance recital to get to but um i guess scared to, you off with that uh, take, huh? end up what's that <laughs> so i scared you off with that take huh no 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 i, I was gonna add on it as a closing note it's close to home as, as a closing uh <laughs> um i think i i can pull a white pill out of what you said because there's been a couple black pills but i think you talk about aligning yourself with people that you want to be aligned with and it wasn't readily available to uh, Genghis Khan's children, right? And children's children, children's children. Um, but we in modernity have the ability to find people, right? We have the ability yes. to find our tribe. And that's what we're doing. That's why we're here together right now. Um, and so I think uh, the church often has often uh, referred to the internet and modern stuff as as blessings and and tools and i think we need to use them as such and we yep. are um and so i think the white pill is we are using it to our advantage um it's an uphill battle but it's there for us so well and you talk about this a lot uh, and i'll finish with this i know we got you got to go scott but you finish with this a lot or talk about this a lot excuse me um bennett in in exit and other things is it's not just i want to take care of my family and just like escape from the world and be a lone lone man in the wilderness my family and like you know live on my own but you got to worry about who your kids going to marry are they going to are they going to keep creating the same legacy you're creating with the people they marry. And so that should actually be your legacy is finding a community of people for where your kids can intermarry within that community and, and do okay and do as well as that we, as we've done. And I can only imagine our ancestors looking down on us going, you have the ability, you know, these people get, get together, do it. What, what, what's your, like, what, like if that they're, they're thinking, if I had the ability, I had to take a, 
three month boat ride from England to get to to, to get to uh, Nauvoo or whatever to get to my people, you can get on a plane. Right. Do it. What do you? What's your deal? Go get on Twitter. Yeah. yeah, go go date that mutual girl in Alberta or whatever. Go do it. <laughs> yeah, get, get, get get it done, what have you got to lose? Who cares? <laughs> but hey, so we'll end it here. Um, Bennett, um, I, I appreciate coming on the show with us, man. This is actually probably our longest episode ever. So hopefully the kids at home enjoy. But um, as a parting thought, is there anything that I know you kind of said in the beginning, but is there anything you want to plug or shill or where can the where can the, the folks at home connect with you if they need to? Uh, Extra Dead JCB on Twitter, extradeadjcb.substack.com on Substack and uh, exitgroup.us. Those would be the places. Cool. And Thanks, we'll link fellas. those in the show notes as well. All right, and we'll go. We'll uh, play the song on the way out, so you can listen to all the awesome throat singing again. Try and pick out some of the lyrics. Yeah. We'll see you. Uh, <laughs> right, awesome. Guys. Thanks, guys. See ya.
Uh, Sean, you're muted. 